Hello, and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota-based nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson. I do communications here at Fresh Energy, and I'm here today to share with you a recording of our recent webinar featuring a conversation between Fresh Energy's Jay Drake Hamilton and Brianna Kerber with the Science Museum of Minnesota's Pat Hamilton. On this webinar, they dug into what happened at COP26 this year and what it means for Minnesota and the Midwest. Thanks for joining us, and I will begin the recording. Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining Fresh Energy today for this webinar. My name is Brianna Kerber. My friends and colleagues call me Bree. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a policy communications associate here at Fresh Energy. Today is November 17th, if you did not know, which means two things. One, we are inching ever closer to the holiday season, which blows my mind. I cannot believe it's already that time of the year. And two, the United Nations Climate Change Conference or Global Climate Summit, also called COP26, is now complete. The summit wrapped up on November 13th and everyone in attendance slowly began trickling back to their respective countries over the past weekend or so. And if you didn't know, Fresh Energy's Senior Science Policy Director, Jay Drake Hamilton, was one of those people, both Jay and her husband, Pat Hamilton. Pat is the Director of Climate Change, Energy, and the Environment at the Science Museum of Minnesota. They were both in Glasgow meeting with national and global leaders for the past two or so weeks, and they are now back in Minnesota with us, which means that today you get to hear not only from Jay, but also from Pat about everything that happened at COP26, from some of the major climate and clean energy commitments to things as mundane as the room and board, and then what we can expect moving forward. I am going to be leading us through a series of questions for Jay and Pat here in just a few moments, but if at any point throughout the webinar you have another question come up that we don't address, feel free to drop it in the Q&A box that you should be able to see at the bottom bar of your Zoom screen. Um, and we will do our best to answer those questions when we get to the Q&A portion of our hour here today. If for some reason we don't get to your question, you can certainly feel free to email one of us about it and I'll have better and more complete instructions on that as we get towards the end of the webinar. Um, my favorite thing about the Q&A box is that if you see someone submit a question that you really like, you can actually upvote that so that we can see that it's a popular one and make sure to uh, spend some time addressing it um, during the Q&A portion. And with that, I think we are ready to jump in. So to start us off, Jay and Pat, could you maybe introduce yourselves really quickly and remind us how many times you've attended the conference, including this year? Hello everyone. I am the Senior Director of Science Policy for Fresh Energy. I've been honored to represent Fresh Energy at six total global climate summits. It fits well with my two and a half decades of work on state and global climate policy details and also the interaction between where the globe needs to go and the importance of Minnesota and the Midwestern U.S in these questions. Each year I speak with 50 audiences, live or virtual. Let me know in your hometown if I should speak there. I think I'm well known for bringing hopeful, real solutions. And in fact, all of us at Fresh Energy are renowned at getting things done in policy action. I'll turn it over to Pat now. Hello everyone. I'm Pat Hamilton, and I have worked at the Science Museum of Minnesota for 37 years, developing a wide variety of environmental projects in that period of time. As Bree mentioned, I am the Director of Climate Change, Energy, and the Environment at the museum. I'm also a fellow with the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In addition, I also serve on the advisory committee to America is All In. Now, if you haven't heard of America is All In, it's a coalition of 1,800 states, counties, cities, corporations, healthcare organizations, religious affiliations, indigenous nations, cultural institutions, and others, all committed to working collaboratively to reduce the United States' greenhouse emissions by 50% by 2030, while creating 
good paying jobs for Americans and also addressing the brunt of environmental and economic harms from fossil fuels and climate change from our communities that have been most impacted by those. And follow, starting with uh, COP21 in Paris, I have participated in five COP conferences with Jay. Awesome. Well, thank you both for sharing a little bit about your backgrounds with us. I know, I think I probably said this during the pre-COP26 webinar with, with Jay that we held, but I can't believe that this is your sixth time uh, attending the conference. I think that that's incredible. Before I came to Fresh Energy, I actually worked on a few campaigns at the UN in Geneva in Switzerland. And it was always a bit overwhelming just on its face because there's so much going on. Um, but I think it was always surprising to me too to see the difference between where you're doing your work. So the UN buildings or office spaces and where you're staying or sleeping, um, whether that's you know in a, in a in a hotel or an Airbnb or some other situation. And, and I remember staying in some really, really old hotels far, far away from, from UN grounds on some of those campaigns. And I heard a rumor that even though, Jay, you and Pat are basically Minnesota's global climate summit royalty at this point, that your living situation in Glasgow is maybe a bit different than you're used to here at home. Yeah. I'll start this off. Um, our lodging was very close to the summit. We could go to the summit every day in about 20 minutes, a combination of walking and short train trips. I'll turn it over to Pat to describe those lodgings. And we were glad to spend as much time as possible at COP26. Uh, imagine your standard college undergraduate dorm room, then shrink it, and then get rid of the chair, the desk, the closet, the dorm fridge, any storage whatsoever, uh, though we did have a rolling clothes rack with four clothes hangers on it. I did ask if we could get a couple more at the front desk, but they said, no, we're all out. The only furniture in the room was uh, a bunk bed. There was a single bunk bed up above and a double, double down below set at a 90 degree angle. And we quickly switched the bedding around so we wouldn't bang our head on the upper bunk when we got up in the night. There was one uh, light bulb in the fixture in the ceiling, and we quickly turned that uh, upper bunk bed into a de facto closed bureau and our computer and cell phone charging station. But unlike my uh, undergraduate dorm room, this room did have a bathroom, though you did have to be a bit acrobatic getting around the door to the toilet and it came with uh, two bath towels and a hand towel. And after our first week there, a bath mat showed up and I joked with Jay that uh, we'd gotten an upgrade. <laughs> but as Jay pointed out, it was our most convenient uh, location in all the COPs. Getting to and from COP in, in 20 minutes was unprecedented in our COP experiences. But the state of our room would make any other couple we know have run for the hills of the highlands. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds to me like you you both were pretty good sports about it. Um, and maybe the, the bright side, silver lining way to look at it is that it added to the overall adventure factor of the whole experience. But, um, you know, another thing that really impacted your time in Glasgow is COVID-19. And obviously COVID-19 has had a huge impact on the world in so many different ways. Um, and it impacted the conference itself since it actually pushed it back a year from the date that it was originally scheduled. And I know, Jay, that you talked with me about how there were ample precautions taken to ensure safety and, he and health for everyone at COP26, not just guests, but staff as well. But I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about what that, that looked like for you guys. Yes, Bree. The United Nations took great care to make vaccinations available to all registered participants in poorer nations. At COP, no one who didn't have a test they conducted that morning showing they were negative on COVID did not get into the summit that day. The tests were free and easy to get the 14 tested tests we needed. Everyone at the summit was required to wear masks at all times 
and they did so assiduously. Thank you. Awesome. Well, Jay, we've we've all been following along with your updates here at Fresh Energy, um, which actually are housed kind of on a special page on our website at fresh-energy.org slash COP26. And Pat, I know the Science Museum of Minnesota has also been sharing updates here and there from you. I think last week or so, I saw a photo of you on, on Twitter wearing your hashtag trust science face, face mask, which I thought was, was awesome. Um, but there's so much that happened at this summit. And although we've probably all heard bits and pieces from different news articles we've seen or, or people who work in clean energy and climate that we may know, I think we would absolutely all benefit from hearing about some of these updates directly from you both. So we will dive into more details on some of these things as we get going, but at a high level, what can you tell us about the progress that was made that we should be celebrating? Yes, Brie, talk about the heart of COP26. First of all, there's no reason for anyone to stop pushing on climate action, but there's nothing wrong with celebrating the progress that's been achieved by all the work done around the globe so far. Things are moving. COP is like two summits at once. The UN in smaller meeting rooms works out the details of moving the rules of the, of the Paris Agreement. Separately, businesses of all types, profit and nonprofit, big and small businesses, announce new initiatives every single day. The UN can't make countries do anything. But parties to a treaty, who are all countries, can use international transparency and peer pressure that can influence other countries to do more, be more bold and ambitious. We are making progress. Only about 10 years ago, scientists thought we would reach four to six degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century, a calamity. We've bent the curve of global warming down. Going into Glasgow immediately, warming was feared to reach only 2.7 degrees Celsius. Now, just two weeks later, post Glasgow, every nationally determined new commitment target, and if all targets announced by anyone anywhere are met, warming would only increase 1.8 degrees Celsius. That's short of the real goal of the Paris Agreement, 1.5 degrees, but that is phenomenal progress in very few years. There's no reason to be complacent. We should try much harder to limit warming, not beyond 1.5 degrees, but the trajectory is in the right direction. Think about what happens at COP. It is also an international festival. Everyone who's doing anything about climate goes to talk to COP to talk about it. The COP president, Alex Sharmar, two days before the end of COP26, advised negotiators to, quote, bring the currency of compromise to your fellow negotiators' discussions, unquote. Finally, they finalized the Paris Agreement rulebook. There have been major initiatives on controlling methane, the global methane pledge that Pat will talk about in a moment, and the commitment made by 100 countries to slow and end deforestation by 2030. This includes Brazil, China, Russia, and the US, and accounts for 86% of the world's forests. So it's a big deal. A group of governments and private funders pledged to spend collectively $1.7 billion on indigenous peoples in local communities protecting local biodiversity. The US and China reached an agreement to boost their cooperation, to raise ambition in the 2020s on an annual basis. The Glasgow Climate Pact, all 
11 pages of it, which is collectively known as sets up new rules to hold countries accountable. A signal has been sent to the world that the era of coal is ending. That matters. It was the first cop out of 26 that coal was even mentioned. Many less developed countries, as well as Costa Rica, Canada, Norway, the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, all intervened that human rights and indigenous rights must be in the text. And I think you mm -hmm. have another question for me, Bree. Yes, I do in just a second, but it sounds like maybe your audio got bumped a little bit and your, your mic may be a little lower. Could you just move it up a little bit so that we can make sure everybody- Is this better? Perfect, I think so, yes. Awesome, Jay. Well, yes, it's, it's great to hear that that really high level kind of overview on, on the different progress that was made on some of these climate solutions that Fresh Energy and, and other like-minded organizations have been advocating for for years. And I know, Jay, that something that probably stood out to you about this, this COP um, that's different from previous ones is that you moderated or hosted two different events on behalf of Fresh Energy um, with, with other clean energy organization partners in Glasgow during the summit, one about the vital importance of rapid decarbonization here in the Midwest, and one about the different types of bold, ambitious actions that are being taken across the Midwest for climate and clean energy. And hopefully some of you in attendance on the Zoom uh, actually got to live stream that second one on November 8th at 10 a.m. But if you did not, don't worry. Both of those events were recorded and you can find them on Jay's dedicated COP26 page on Fresh Energy's website. And I'll repeat that, that web address. It's fresh-energy.org slash COP26. So Jay and Pat, speaking about those events, what can you share with us from those? Well, I'll start out with this. And I think you're going to show us a couple of slides. This is one of our events. And I took the initiative to create two different events with different panels of speakers who I invited, talking about a combination of Midwestern bold actions and the need for achieving decarbonization right in the West, in the Midwest. If you'll go on to the next slide, please, Bree. This shows um, Fresh Energy's depiction of if it were an independent country, the US Midwest would be, you note on the chart on the left side, the US Midwest would be the sixth biggest greenhouse gas emitter, emitter in the world. So we had panelists um, who included a range of perspectives and sectors because people always ask me, this 32% of all US greenhouse gas emissions, what does that come from? And it comes from all sectors is the, is the sad point. Um, so for example, um, you can visualize the power of those panels of Midwesterners we brought together, including the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, together with Minnesota-based agricultural giant Cargill and the assistant commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Transportation, who was the highest ranking official from Governor Walz's administration at the COP, as well as, and maybe you can advance the slide one, um, because here is Minnesota Representative Patty Acom and me, recapping the clean energy transition that has replaced almost all of Minnesota's coal generation with large amounts of wind, solar, efficiency, and batteries. We discussed how to move forward boldly on so many different sectors in Minnesota and throughout the Midwest. And I'll turn it over to Pat to talk about an event he arranged. Thank you, Jay. On the morning of the second week, uh, of, actually the morning of the first week of COP, I was invited by a nonprofit called uh, Environment and Culture Partners to participate in this session 
all about how to organize and get the um, cultural sector in the United States more involved in climate action in order to get the public more, un develop a higher understanding of climate change issues and get them more involved in climate action. And the reason for this is because after all, culture institutions in the US are some of the most trusted and popular entities in the country, which is why I took an opportunity to tell a short story about the Science Museum of Minnesota in order to exemplify the fact that I see enormous potential yet untapped potential for huge economic employment, equity, education, and environmental benefits. If you know, innovative you know, uh, climate and energy innovative culture institutions weren't rare in the United States, but commonplace. Yeah, okay. awesome. Well, I watched both events, one live, the, the, the one, the Bold Ambitious Actions event that Jay, you helped host, um, and one after the recording had posted to YouTube, because I think it took place at like 3 a.m. our time here in, in the Twin Cities, yeah. but I thought they were great, and, and even though this was certainly not either of your first time attending and, and speaking at the Global Climate Summit, it was so awesome to see you both there helping lead the Minnesota delegation. Um, and I know obviously you interacted quite a bit with, with those members of the Minnesota delegation, but you also had a chance to meet and interact with a handful of different US leaders who are helping really drive clean energy and climate progress at the federal level. So. If, if people were following along, Jay, with your web your updates on our website, or if they follow either one of you on social media accounts, maybe they already saw a bit about who those people are. But for the rest of us, could you reveal who you met with and maybe a bit about those meetings? Yes, I'll at least give you a taste for it because we had very good access. Both Pat and I, along with many in the group of Minnesotans at COP, which we estimate at least 80 Minnesotans and maybe as many as 100. We met with our Congresswoman, Betty McCullough, and we talked about her experiences at COP to date and our experience with this need shown to you in the graphic just five minutes ago about the need to move the Midwest to full decarbonization. And we took lots of photos and we shared some of them on social media. So follow Fresh Energy and you'll see more of them. And then Bree, would you um, make sure that, um, yes, this guy is on the screen. Because I also got myself invited to meet with the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate from the United States Department of State. And first of all, I need to tell you, this was not the first time that I met with John Kerry. And he remembered me from the first time. Because at that point, I was invited in to meet with Senator Kerry, uh, former Senator Kerry, who was our head negotiator in Paris. And he was within a few days of got, getting past the Paris Agreement. And he had invited less than 10 people in the room with him. And I was just delighted to have a chance to talk with him. And so I really was wondering how many people would be invited this time. And so I was in a room that held maybe 100 people. But of course, I'm a scrappy Minnesotan. So I knew to get there 10 minutes early. And I had the best seat in the house. I was this close to him, about 10 feet away. And I got to greet him as he walked in, reminded him of having met in Paris in those surreal circumstances. He remembered me. Maybe it has something to do with my name. And I found John Kerry. This was at, taken at about 11 a.m., just as he'd been introduced. And he was introduced as someone who had been up till at least 3 a.m. that morning reading reports. But you know what? He looked incredibly happy. He was very humorous. We were meeting in a former train tunnel in Glasgow that had been revamped. But he, when he got his first question, he just sat back and smiled at the room. And he said, I have to point out to you that this is a beautiful room. 
and it makes me feel like I'm on a in a James Bond film, and I expect Q and M to walk in next. So I found out that he was looking well rested. He was calm. He was brilliant as he always is as a negotiator, and he was very positive. So I was wondering at least what was going on. And John Kerry started with us talking about the United States estimates that the world will need. Guess what the world will need to provide for financing some of the damage um, and ameliorating some of the damage around the world. They will need to spend between $2.6 trillion to as much as $4.6 trillion every year. And he pointed out that countries cannot afford all this. You need the private sector to come to this deal. So he laid out his plans for reaching out to start raising that kind of money. Now, I was also noting during his 45 or 50 minute presentation, how his demeanor compared to what it had been in Paris when he was negotiating the Paris Agreement. He seemed much more relaxed. He seemed very positive and very hopeful. And the next words out of his mouth, he said, by 2030 in the United States, we won't have coal plants. Isn't that dynamic and on track words? He also said that his work so far, and this was in the beginning of the second week of COP, this is the most stunning revolution I'm witnessing since the industrial revolution. Because every person he talked to was an innovator and or an entrepreneur. And he was really liking new ideas, workable ideas that were coming forward everywhere at the COP. And I, I didn't finally learn until two days after this event what the special envoy Kerry was so happy about. Two days later, he had a press conference with President Xi of China, and they announced their Vigor partnership. And in fact, some of you may have caught that just on Monday of this week, his boss, President Biden, had a meeting virtually with President Xi on Monday, and it was a meeting between the two largest economies of the world. And they said that climate change can only be tackled if all countries reduce their emissions. But they pointed out that the largest single emitter, China, contributes 31% of the global total emissions. And the US comes in second, unfortunately, because it contributes 14% of the emissions. So it was interesting when President Xi and President Biden had their virtual meeting on Monday, they pointed out that this is the most consequential relationship on the planet. And that's very, very right. And now I'm going to turn it over to Pat to talk about one of the meetings he had. Pat? Thank you, Jay. Um, earlier in my, my remarks, I mentioned America is All In, which uh, shared a pavilion with the World Wildlife uh, Federation and was very active in programming it with sessions, but also opportunities to have meetings. And early on the second day of the COP conference, America's All In arranged a meeting with 16 of us with uh, Gina McCarthy, President Biden's national climate advisor. And it was an opportunity for, for us to impress upon her the importance of cultural institutions in helping to accelerate climate action in the United States. And during my uh, introduction, I had an opportunity to, to remind her that five years ago when she was head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, she was actually at the Science Museum of Minnesota for a meeting about energy and climate change. 
and that I'd had an opportunity to actually give her a tour of the Science Museum's Advanced Heat Recovery Project. And she nodded her head vigorously and said, yes, I, I remember that, that tour. And she applauded the Science Museum on taking the initiative to develop and put in place such an, an innovative energy system. So it was very uh, nice to see her and, and re reconnect with her. And she was just one of, of many people from Biden's administration that were there to publicly present a very clear face that, this, that the United States was back in on climate change. And I think Jake can um, list some of the others. Yes, so I wanna tell people that they probably know that President Biden was at the first two days or of the first three days of COP26, but he also sent most of his cabinet there for the full two weeks. And I was especially impressed by the numbers of US governors, US senators, and US representatives there. My estimate is that there were at least 40 people there and they moved around the conference and they gave talk to everyone they could and they were then led off to their next conversation. So they were really doing the lion's share of work. Pat and I also got to hear from the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, that, who I had met just 10 days before when she was in Minnesota. We heard from the Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland, who is the first indigenous secretary, and the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. Describing these opportunities includes what Secretary of Energy Granholm had to say. And I'm quoting her. She said, you can be in on creating a clean energy economy and on managing the transition so that people have access to both affordable and reliable power. At one event, Secretary Granholm introduced the brilliant Dr. Jennifer Wilcox, who is in charge for the carbon negative shot called Mission Innovation, arranged by President Biden, making bold, achievable leaps in emerging less emissions technologies. Dr. Wilcox is helping invest $5.8 billion per year, and her target is to get at a cost of $100 per ton of carbon or less. The question before her team is, can we remove carbon from the atmosphere at an affordable cost? Gigatons of removal are needed by mid-century. On November 6th, we heard directly from two US senators we'd never met before, Massachusetts US Senator Ed Markey and Maryland U.S. Senator Ben Cardin about the Build Back Better Act. It will unleash a revolution of clean energy and we will exceed 50% carbon reductions in the U.S. It brings a 10-year period of tax incentives and tax breaks to the U.S. 40% of that investment will be in environmental justice communities. The largest investment in clean energy transition in the history of the United States. And I think Pat, Bree has a question now for you. Yeah, well, it's it's amazing. What an awesome experience to be able to meet so many of those, those US leaders and learn from them, but also work kind of right alongside them and helping drive negotiations on, on this clean energy and climate progress. Um, and yeah, speaking speaking of the U.S., one of the things that was most impactful, I think, that came out of the summit was that it was somewhere around 107 countries, including the U.S., pledged large emissions reductions for methane gas emissions. And Pat, I know that one of the things that the Science Museum of Minnesota really excels at is taking some of these technical science things and breaking them down to, to everyday person speak. Um, so <laughs> if you wanted to maybe explain to us some of the details of that methane emissions pledge and tell us what it might mean for global climate action. Thank you, Brie, would you advance the slide? 
um, that describes it. Yeah, that's the one. Thank you. So that's a, uh, a good point, Bree, that you make about uh, methane. And this is the uh, methane moment uh, pavilion within the uh, COP26. And uh, it was very heavily trafficked through the whole time that the, uh, the pavilion was open. And the reason was because there had been an agreement reached um, early on in COP26 to reduce methane gas emissions from around the world. And this is an important decision, an accomplishment for several reasons. First of all, because even though methane lasts in the atmosphere for a much shorter period of time than carbon dioxide, it is a very potent greenhouse gas. So in a 20 year span of time, one molecule of methane will uh, retain 80 times more heat energy than a molecule of carbon dioxide. At least a quarter of today's uh, temperature increases are caused by methane from human sources, especially oil and gas operations. So cutting uh, methane emissions is the single fastest, most impactful thing we can do right now to slow the warming, while it allows us to capture some precious time to reach the, the larger decarbonization efforts that we need in order to eliminate the risks of even deeper, more serious uh, climate change impacts. Uh, which is why I think the United States and the European Union are uh, working to encourage over 100 countries to adopt the methane goal of 30% reduction by 2030 was so important. Now, uh, COP26 is over and now attention starts to shift from the decisions that were reached to actually monitoring and verifying uh, that those decisions are actually being implemented. And an essential tool for doing so is a satellite that will actually be shot into orbit about a year from now in the fall of 2020. The inspiration for this uh, comes from a 2018 TED Talk by Fred Krupp, who is the president of the Environmental Defense Fund, also known as, as EDF. And this satellite, um, MethaneSat LLC, will be a wholly owned subsidiary of EDF but it is being developed with the idea that it will be wholly transparent. Once this satellite is, is up in space and operating, it will send data down to the surface where algorithms will quickly uh, process that data into actionable maps and information about um, methane emissions around the planet at, at a level of detail and precision and timeliness that is unprecedented. So I think a little over a year from now, uh, the world will have access to uh, information about methane gas emissions on a near real term basis. And this information will be available free of charge, not just to governments and businesses, but to anyone everywhere. So what that means is that in a little over a year, if you're emitting methane into the atmosphere, virtually anywhere in the world, everyone will know about it. And I think this is a, a prime example of, of how um, inspiration um, driven by both possibility and necessity has resulted in the creation of a, of a satellite that will, I think, uh, achieve a much in reducing greenhouse gas emissions by leveraging the best of science, technology, engineering, and math. Now, quite candidly, the work isn't done. 107 countries have signed uh, the methane emissions reduction pact, but Russia, India, and China, three of the largest emitters of methane have not yet signed on. But I trust that once this satellite is up in space and allowing everyone everywhere to see not only where methane is being emitted by, by how much, I think the, the pressure internationally for those countries to sign on the agreement will become um, very high and intense. Definitely. Well, that, in my opinion, is is absolutely something to to celebrate. And thank you for for giving us that that background context on that, Pat. And Jay, speaking of of celebrating, uh, many of us heard about a new deal in Glasgow um, that is going to bring about carbon-free steel and aluminum a little bit faster. What do you know about this new deal and what can you tell us about it? Oh, I think you're still muted, Jay. 
You're very right, Bree. Decarbonizing industries such as those is notoriously difficult. On the first day of COP, October 31, there was a huge announcement that Trump-era steel and aluminum tariffs by the United States against the European Union are being dropped in exchange for a new compact to partner on carbon-free steel and aluminum. So collectively, steel and aluminum production account for 10% of all global carbon releases. People see this as a way to beat the Chinese on decarbonizing industry, as well as support US workers and EU workers and industries. The emission steel aims to restrict imports of metals produced with quote unquote dirty methods, targeting especially those from China, which are produced largely by burning coal. The lead of the project was the White House's industrial decarbonization guru, whose name is Jane Flagel. Labor, including the Blue-Green Alliance, is excited about the potential over this Glasgow deal, and so is industry, and so are environmentalists. So this is the much sought after win, win, win. Well, that's that's awesome, and and to to have labor and industry and environmentalists alike really celebrating that is is an awesome win, as you said. Um, you know, another thing that stood out to to me about this year's summit is that it seemed like there was an elevated in, intention to consider the impacts of human damage on nations across the world, and to ensure that that response to that that human damage, both financial and otherwise, is both equitable and just. And I think, Jay, that you yourself told me that the UN refers to this kind of area of finance as loss and damage investment. So what can you tell us about the UN's loss and damage initiative and, and how did it feature into discussions at COP26? Well, I'm going to highlight first what made it into the Glasgow Climate Pact which has been released now. It's only 11 pages. It's what's called the text. And I read it again just this week. And it calls upon parties. Those are the countries. 197 were there. And it calls upon those parties to accelerate efforts toward the phase down on unabated coal power. The first time that has ever been mentioned at a COP. And the Glasgow Climate Pact elsewhere calls upon the parties, that's about as firm language as you get from the UN, to provide, quote, targeted support to the poorest and most vulnerable in line with national circumstances. That also had never appeared in a text previously. And the third appearance in the Glasgow Climate Pact, it says the UN urges the parties, those countries, to quote, considering their respective obligations on human rights. That is the strongest statement that came out. But the issue of loss and damage provoked the most anger at this COP26. This is the idea that rich countries should compensate poor ones for the economic and human cause caused by the rich's emissions. The idea of compensation for loss and damage represents a vital principle for the global south, the countries of the global south, one that lies at the heart of their idea of climate justice. The most damaging effects of global warming are being experienced by the countries that contributed least to causing it. And that is making them poorer. Loss and damage would pay for irreparable losses, big losses such as the dis disappearance of national territories, the disappearance of culture, and the disappearance of ecosystems. Now, rich nations made a significant pledge 12 years ago to the world. They promised to channel 
U.S. $100 billion a year to less wealthy nations by 2020 to help them adapt to climate change and mitigate further rises in temperature. That promise has so far been broken. We're not there yet. That pledge is minuscule. Meeting the globe's climate goals will require, as I said before, mobilizing trillions of dollars US of public and private dollars. So we are going to hear lots more about loss and damage in a year from now at the next COP. Discuss the impacts of ad advocacy from LDCs that led to doubling finance for adaptation. In the text of the COP actually now says that it will double finance for adaptation to 50%. So that's a huge victory. Over the next 12 months, there is urgent work to be done to unleash key sources of finance distinct from national commitments, including bilateral, multilateral developments, and especially from the private sector. I think you have another question for me, Bray. I do. Well, thank you for, for sharing with us your, your insight into that, that area of action. It's, it's so critical that we ensure that countries, as you said, who are bearing the brunt of climate change, they played very little, if any, part at all in causing, get the support that they need to respond to these climate emergencies that they're facing. And I think that I speak for myself and all of us here at Fresh Energy when I say that it's about time that we really start that global conversation and, and ensure that we're giving that conversation our, our time and our efforts. Um, we have talked so far at length about different types of things that have happened at the summit, but I wanna kind of bring it back home now um, and, and think about what's next. So what, what are our next steps? Um, based on what you've seen at the summit, what, what do we need to do to keep pushing the needle on climate action? And Bria, focus on the steps the United States needs to take. We need to fully enact the infrastructure law and to pass a similarly bipartisan Build Back Better Act, which is known as capital B, capital B, capital B, capital A to do our part to allow these extensive efforts to show the rest of the world how to take historic climate and clean energy actions that show that at least 40% of these investments demonstrably benefit black people, indigenous people, and other people of color. So on November 5th, the US House passed the most significant investments in climate and clean energy ever joining with the U.S. Senate. And on Monday this week, President Biden signed the bipartisan infrastructure law for $2 trillion of investment into law. With this historic law, our country is now on the path to reduce the carbon pollution that drives climate change, while very importantly, creating jobs and opportunity for all. We will feel these impacts right here in Minnesota. The 2,500 plus page law has some key elements for clean energy and climate for Minnesota. Estimates of what Minnesota can expect to receive include $818 million over five years to improve public transportation options across the state, $68 million over five years to support the expansion of an electric vehicle charging network in the state. Minnesota would also have the opportunity to apply for $2.5 billion in dedicated to further EV charging. A portion of the $3.5 billion national investment in weatherization would be to reduce energy costs for families and more. But while this infrastructure law is a huge first step, we need this momentum to continue. The provisions for clean energy and climate in the Build Back Better Act will have significant impact in Minnesota and deepen all the work that the infrastructure law will set into motion. 
We need the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate to pass the Build Back Better Act and its climate provision. Our goal is to ensure these federal resources, both with the infrastructure law and the Building Back Better Act, deliver meaningful and local climate and equity-focused projects. They promote family-supporting jobs. They drive economic development in rural communities and under-resourced communities and spur innovation throughout all sectors of our economy. And what you can do is make sure you've talked to your member of Congress and urge them of the importance of passing this Build Back Better Act as soon as possible. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jay, for, for that response. And, and thank you both, Jay and Pat, for this thorough overview on what went down at COP26. I see some great questions in the Q&A, so I'm excited to get started on some of those, as many as we can in the next 10 to 15 minutes in just a moment. But I would be remiss if I first did not take a, mentioned, uh, a moment to mention that tomorrow, November 18th, is Give to the Max Day. And here at Fresh Energy, we are working really hard to drive bold policy action to reduce carbon emissions and advance solutions at the scale of climate change, solutions that are going to improve quality of life for all Minnesotans and build an economy in which every single one of us can thrive. And we simply cannot do that work without your support. We are gearing up for a successful Give to the Max Day tomorrow, and we would absolutely love it if you would consider including us in your giving plans. You can make your gift online at the web address that I'm about to say. It's bit.ly slash givefresh, and I'll spell it out too, bit.ly slash givefresh. And with that, I think we're ready to jump into some of our, our audience submitted questions. And I see a few that I, I'm gonna try to roll into one. So Jay, I've got, I've got let's see, um, Julia and it looks like um, Philip asking a question about the involvement of, of young people and environmental justice communities in some of these, these climate and clean energy commitments. And obviously, you know, Right here in the Twin Cities, we know that that youth and environmental justice communities are so important in driving this true equitable and true just clean energy and climate progress. So how does that activism that occurs in all of these different places around the world, but also in Glasgow this year, how does that reflect during during some of these negotiations? I saw young people and environmental justice communities everywhere I was, inside the COP and outside the COP. A lot of young people and even very old people were marching on the streets in a heavy rain pour in Glasgow and they got a lot of coverage. This is a way of shaming some countries in the world who are not doing enough. And that is most of the countries who are not doing enough. The other thing I noticed was a lot of the environmental justice communities were taking the tact of formally intervening in the UN discussions. So saying directly to a huge room, holding a thousand people from 197 countries and landmarked in front of the room with a table that was composed primarily of the COP president, Alex Sharma. And they were telling him, people from all sorts of countries, rich countries, very poor countries, a lot of under-resourced communities from within those countries saying the same thing all together. They were saying, we need you to put human rights and indigenous rights into the text that comes out of this COP. And we feel abandoned. We feel abandoned by countries of the world and including by the United Nations. They need to make that. And it was very evident when I listened to so many of those interveners speak in public on the second Thursday of COP. I made notes about all the countries were saying and country after country was talking about loss and damages. And they were very concerned that we need to solve this problem 
and we need to fund it appropriately. And we need to get it to the countries who need it most in a way that will benefit people the most. So they, one country after another was saying, you not only need to provide loans to poor countries, you need to provide outright grants to make sure that these countries have the help they needed because they are suffering from the actions of you rich countries in the world. So it was very, I was very proud to see both the less, the very under-resourced countries and the rich countries, many of them, including the United States, Canada, Norway, Norway the UK and the European Union, all joining in with the under-resourced countries. And you bet every country in the world was hearing that come through loud and clear. Well, that's 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 great to hear, Jay. I think that's so important um, in in you know ensuring that that these conversations, like I mentioned earlier, are truly geared toward equitable and just climate and clean energy progress. That, like we at Fresh Energy like to say so often, actually truly benefits everyone. So I'm I'm glad to hear that 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 conversation is moving forward and that everyone is on the same page, that we are not doing enough, but that we're continuing to, to make those efforts and, and, and advance on that. I think we're gonna move to some of the more maybe technical questions is, is the best way to say it in the, the q and I've got a question here from Bill asking, what kind of discussions at COP occurred with regard to nuclear energy as a low carbon energy alternative? And he kind of follows that up with a, a second part to his question, asking Jay, or maybe Pat too, do you believe it's possible to become carbon neutral while maintaining um, the current standard of living that we have without substantial reliance on nuclear energy? Well, my answer to that, Bill, is there were a number of sessions on nuclear as a zero carbon technology. And the second part of your question I think what you're really asking is, can we get to the climate action we need with just using renewables or just using our favorite renewables? And for both of those questions, the answer is no. No one, no university who has studied this issue in the United States has found that we know yet how to get there only with solar power or only with non-nuclear. There's a little what I call a delta between what we can get to with renewable energy, energy efficiency, batteries and energy storage. And in many parts of the United States, that delta is about 10% or 20% for which we need something else now. Doesn't mean we'll always need the something else, but we know that carbon-free nuclear in those nuclear plants that are operating very well and very safely. We need to keep those running as long as we can when we need to fill in that delta. Because what that delta means, if you don't meet the delta with renewable energy, and there's certain times of the day or of the year where you cannot do that now, then the power stops working and or it becomes unaffordable primarily to the under-resourced communities who we are trying so hard to protect. So um, we do need to look very closely at our nuclear plants and to see what we can do to keep them working safely and affordably um, and moving forward. Thank you, Bill. And just to add on that, uh, nuclear power had a, a lot of representation in the pavilion. And I think there's a, there was a lot of interest in talk about next generation nuclear power, uh, a lot of interest in developing new nuclear technologies that, that don't have the, the risks uh, inherent in some of the existing uh, fission technology that we currently use in, in nuclear power. Great. Well, thank you both for, for your insight into that question. I think, you know, we've only got a few minutes left and I think I'm going to 
end the Q&A time with a question from Paul Thompson, who is curious whether carbon pricing was discussed as a solution at all at these, these global climate summit uh, discussions. And Paul is wondering how, you know, countries like the US and Australia might factor into that process, if at all. Yes, I don't know the answer to the second part of the question with regard to Australia, but there were a lot of sessions devoted to car pricing. And I will speak only of the United States. We do not yet see in the federal government um, enough interest in, yet in carbon pricing. And part of our conundrum is that we do not necessarily need carbon pricing because other policies can take and have even more effect than that. Um, so we don't need to worry about going after this particular initiative right away. I think that eventually we'll get there. Um, but I just don't know um, what the Australians had to say. And I have to say about the Australians, the best part of the Australian um, contribution to the COP was they provided excellent free coffee to anyone who came by their pavilion. And that was the most, most basic, but not terribly ambitious role that they played. And critical, right, Jay? You got to be caffeinated to get through all these negotiations. <laughs> yeah, I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of time, Jay, if you want to share with us any of your closing thoughts before we, we round out the end of this webinar. Yes, I would really like to, Bree. There's an immense amount of will in the world to address this problem. That's what I take away from COP. There is so much going on. Civic groups, cultural organizations, the private sector, and subnational governments, including Minnesota and many of the states in the Midwest, are leading the way. It's not so much the national governments who are leading. At COP, the world was agonizingly, slowly, gathering speed to address this crisis. The good news is things are moving. Many things that were not known about, like this methane sat, were brand new to people. Some new things were created in less than two weeks in Glasgow, like the methane pledge, the deforestation goal, and the first of any cops to mention fossil fuels as requiring phase down and outsized voices of less developed countries and many rich countries together intervening at the UN for human rights and for indigenous people. We will create and do more big action in the next year, and then in the next year, then the next year and every few months. And we'll be working on this problem for 20 or 40 years. We are accelerating to meet this climate with success. Now the world demands accounting, reporting, transparency and tracking. And you remember what I said about minutes? We need everyone, both the nations who are parties to this treaty, as well as every business, every local community, every state that has made um, a pledge. We need all of them to come through with this. And I will quote the special envoy, Kerry. He said, it's not just placards and signs in the streets we need. We need Excel spreadsheets and balance sheets. And what we say at Fresh Energy is what we've said for years. We need to look back and say, we did everything we could and it worked. Thank you so much. Mm, yes, very well said, Jay, and, and so true. And with that, since I can't top that, I think that brings our event to a close. If we weren't able to answer your question today, please feel free to email either me or Jay with it, and we will get back to you with an answer. My email is kerber at freshenergy.org. That is K-E-R-B-E-R -E at fresh-energy.org. And Jay's is hamilton at fresh-energy.org. 
Thank you so much again to everyone who joined us for this behind the scenes look into what happened at COP26 in Glasgow. If you missed part of the conversation or are really looking forward to sharing it with your networks, a recording will be available shortly. Everyone who registered for the event will get an email soon with a link to that recording. So stay tuned and keep an eye on your inbox and have a great rest of the day. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the audio recording of our webinar. As Bree mentioned, Give to the Max Day is on Thursday, November 18th. And if you're listening to this podcast after the 18th, the good news is that you can still make a donation to Fresh Energy. Visit fresh-energy.org and click the big yellow donate button in the upper right corner. And of course, you can stay up to date on all of the Fresh Energy news and happenings at fresh-energy.org or follow us on social media. And stay tuned in the next couple weeks. I'll be hosting a podcast about the state of coal in Minnesota. All right, it's a working title, so bear with me. Uh, but I'll be joined by our policy experts, Isabel Ricker, Alan Gleckner, and Justin Fay. And if all goes well, we'll be debuting our new online tool for tracking coal in Minnesota. Oh, and I would also be remiss if I didn't mention that Fresh Energy is hiring some policy staff. Go to fresh-energy.org and click the link in the big orange bar at the top of the page. Until next time, thank you for listening.